Welcome to Best Me Radio. I'm your host, Carl Hammington, and I talk to experts in many areas, including movement, psychology, nutrition, as well as other inspiring people who have done extraordinary things, all in an attempt to provide you with the information, inspiration, and tools that will empower you to step into the best version of yourself. Hello and welcome to our first supersode of Best Me Radio. A supersode is where we're going to investigate one subject from multiple angles, just to give it a really rounded approach. Today we're going to be investigating the very popular subject of gut health. There's more and more research coming out on gut health and the more we understand, I feel like we're just scratching the surface really, but the more we understand, the more we realize how important it really is. Now we're looking at it from three completely different angles. We have a gut neuroscience level, so we're looking at how intelligent the gut really is and how it communicates. We have a journalist and field research approach where someone has actually gone out into the field and investigated the microbiome um, and how that changes dependent on environment. Now first up, we have a very popular and uh, very knowledgeable, experienced nutritionist and naturopath as well as one of my good friends. Please enjoy. Hi, I am Helen Patteron. I'm a clinical naturopath and nutritionist. I've been in practice for 17 years now, mostly in Sydney, but also spent four and a half years based in New Zealand, in Wellington, which is where I met you, Carl. And um, what a blessing that was because not only did um, we managed to build a great friendship, but also a fantastic working relationship um, over there as well. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, since returning to Australia, I have been um, involved with Pete Evans with work. Um, I wrote the complete gut health cookbook with him and also Bubba Yum Yum, uh, the book for new mums, babies and toddlers. And what else? I um, run a program called 9v9 because I am quite passionate about uh, getting people to eat more veggies um, for many reasons, including ones I'm sure we'll talk about today. Thank you for that intro, uh, Helen, and equally as grateful at this end. So um, before we kick into it and before we go into the why behind um, your program, um, I'd like you to just to give us a little bit of an insight as to what brought you uh, into the gut health realm and, um, you know, why that became such a, such a big part of what you do. Yeah, so I guess um, initially it really began with my own health journey growing up. Um, it wasn't that great, so having almost um, – come into this world three months too early, mum went into a premature labour, um, I ended up coming in the end a bit late, but that was through interventions, which did save my life, so I'm grateful for that, but it also came with consequences. And so from um, early childhood, I had asthma and eczema, um, very severe allergies, you know, I'd break out in hives all over my body just from touching egg white I couldn't be in a room that a cat had been in or I'd be wheezing and sneezing and eyes like golf balls um the asthma went on throughout my teens I had recurrent infections so particularly bronchitis usually in March around my birthday so that was um pretty much an annual event so lots of antibiotics with that as well in year nine so when I was 14 I had pneumonia and then in year 11 I had shingles and so there was just a lot of 
immune stuff going on. And the first thing I remember going to the doctor for when I was a young child as well was actually constipation. So um, there were gut things going on from the beginning too, evidently. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, sorry, Gary. I can imagine this would be a very common story for a lot of people growing up today as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like for those people, like it was for me, often you don't really think about it or think about doing anything about it because when you grow up like that, that's your normal. So you don't realize this is not how I'm meant to be feeling until you start feeling better. And then it's like, my God, I can't believe I put up with feeling like that Hmm. for all those years. And no wonder I struggled in the ways that I struggled. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty huge. And on top of that as well, in my teens and through to my mid-20s, I suffered quite a bit of depression and had um, polycystic ovarian syndrome around, I think it was 21. So there was a lot of metabolic immune gut issues going on. And so fortunately, I was pretty clear at the end of school that I wanted to study naturopathy. And um, so I went through my training for four plus years of that and um, started at a young age in clinic really. I was 21, 22 when I first started in clinic. And so while I had learnt the theory of all this gut stuff, um, it was a weird it was different in practice because I still wasn't relating it to myself. It was this theoretical thing in my head that I was applying to other people, not to me at this stage. And then I was starting to see patients and they were coming into me with these gut symptoms that they were telling me about. And I was like, oh, in my own head, I'm thinking, oh, that's what happens with me. Oh, that's what happens with me. And I was like, ah, oh, so... these are the kinds of things that people do something about, you know. So I thought, okay, I need to get myself tested. So I took myself off to one of the GPs who I worked with and still work with to this day and um, asked them to test anti-gliadin antibodies for me. And, you know, so at that stage found out that I was quite sensitive to gluten. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one of the first steps of me discovering my gut health journey and the impact that that had on me. And I really found out how much just gluten affected my gut, my energy and my moods. Like it would really affect my emotional well-being and mental well-being quite a bit. Um, And then I was fortunate because of working with a biomedical pediatrician of being exposed to the autism community. And it was through that exposure and training with the Mind Foundation, who are fantastic, that's Mm, M-I-N-D-D. Yeah, Um, I really learnt the link between the gut, the immune system, metabolic pathways and the brain. And so I started working with a lot of children with autism and autism spectrum disorders and, um, you know, pretty much all of them have severe gut stuff going on. Most of them have severe, some of them have mild but mostly it's quite severe. Mm. And so it was through working with those children that um, I really found out what worked best for gut health from a clinical perspective. And, um, yeah, I had at the same time been learning about Western A. Price and then Mm. looking into gut healing protocols, which included the GAPS diet, the specific carbohydrate diets, 
and the body ecology diet. And there's some similarities in those diets, but there's also some contradictions or differences. But when you overlapped all the similarities, essentially what you ended up with was a paleo-style diet. Mm. And so before I even knew what paleo was, I was um, eating that way. And um, that's what I was guiding the majority of my patients through because most of them had gut issues as well and so I never was really terming it paleo or identifying Mm. as paleo per se but typically for most of the people most of the time going through a healing process that kind of template was the most useful one to go by. Brilliant. Yeah, actually, in terms of um, paleo, I found that all of the criticism um, of paleo seems to be of people that seem to misinterpret what paleo actually is. Absolutely, and that's <laughs> a really good point. Yeah, it's not about having, um, uh, you know, James a side of bacon. Of bacon. <laughs> yeah, a, a side of bacon with your steak on top of eggs kind of thing. That's, <laughs> that's not what it's about. Yeah. Um, it's very much, you know, my take anyway, it's still very much a plant-based diet. The majority is plants. Um, we typically don't need a large amount of protein, but some protein from animals tends to be quite important for healing. In my experience, I used to be vegetarian as well. So, yeah. you know, I've come from that perspective as well. Um, And then good fats are incredibly important, so they are included too. But again, there's a lot of plants in there and a lot Mm. of people who are eating a nourishing and cleansing paleo kind of model are eating a lot more vegetables than vegetarians do. (laughs) So not that it's a comparison of one way or the other because at different times of life you know we go through different seasons with our health and and what state we're in and at and at different times different ways of eating are going to be appropriate so Mm. the other thing I'm very passionate about is not identifying yourself as being paleo or as being vegetarian or as being vegan or as being whatever label you want to choose it's about eating appropriately for your needs at that time and getting getting to a point where you can actually uh, tune in and hear what your body is telling you because your body will tell you what it is that you need. You just We just need to learn to listen. That is perfectly summed up. Thank you. <laughs> so just if we, if we were to skip to, uh, you know, the research or your understanding of the research around um, gut health, why mm-hmm. do you think that people might want to take it seriously? Like what has poor gut health been related to health-wise? My goodness. I mean, we're so lucky in this age of information because the amount of research that is coming out now is just pretty staggering. And the beautiful thing about it is largely it is backing up naturopathic principles that Mm. have been practiced for centuries. It seems to be like so far ahead. It's crazy. I remember when we first met, actually, you told me about all of this gut health stuff and I was already sort of getting into it a little bit. Mm. We went to the, you know, I went and checked out the Mind Foundation mm. and it was sort of almost an underground network then. And yeah. now all of a sudden it's, oh, this research shows it actually. Exactly. Yeah. Foods may be useful and bone broth and I blah, blah, blah. Know. And it's all coming out now in the research, which is great I to know. see, but it's just a it's little awesome. bit behind. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And, it, it, you know, it's kind of funny that it's this whole big new topic and it's like, well, actually it's not new. We've been doing this for 
centuries and personally have been doing this for decade or well, dec- uh, two decades almost now. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's not new, but the information and the validation, the validation is new. Yeah. So, um, yes, I mean, <laughs> when you say why do we want to take it seriously, I can't think of a reason not to take it seriously. Yeah. If you think about your gut um, as being, first of all, part of the outside of your body, mm. um, we are basically meat donuts, right? <laughs> and your, guts, your gut Point is the, the yeah. <laughs> your gut is the whole, right? Mm. And the whole of the donut is still part of the outside of the donut. So because it is um, an avenue of entry for foreign particles to come into the body, there is an incredible amount of our immune system there. Mm. So most of our immune system actually is in the lining of our gut wall more than 80% of it. And our immune system is so important for regulating so much of what goes on in our body from um, daily cellular functions and repair to healing wounds to managing um, inflammation. And if we look at our modern epidemics of the industrialized world, they are generally um, diseases of inflammation and toxicity that we're dealing with. Mm. And so um, this regulation of the immune system is incredibly important. And how we regulate that is really largely through the microbes that are residing within the gut. Um, They're basically at the switchboard of the immune system Mm. saying, this is how you re- uh, respond to a pathogen. This is how you respond to a toxin. Um, this is how you respond to what's going on with this um, joint inflammation, whether you turn it on, turn it off, keep it going kind of thing. So inflammation is a necessary and an important part of physiology. The problem is when it goes um, untapped or um misguided right and it doesn't get switched off and then it actually ends up causing more damage so it becomes chronic that's right and Mm. so many diseases that we're now dealing with are inflammatory in nature so everything from autoimmune diseases um and out of those things like rheumatoid arthritis and hashimoto's thyroiditis are probably off the top of my head and going from what I see in clinic, the two largest growing areas of problems Mm. there. Um, Then we have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Hmm. um, all sorts of um, joint issues that are not rheumatoid arthritis. Depression and anxiety have been linked to inflammation. Um, You know, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis is also increasing. So all of these things have an element of immune regulation and inflammation involved. Um, And when we look at neurological conditions, I mean, even just depression for that matter, um, it might seem weird, you know, why does what's going on in the gut affect, you know, how you're thinking or feeling? Mm. But we actually have more immune cells in our brain than we do have brain cells, okay? So <laughs> if the immune system is getting overactivated, those microglial cells in the brain get really activated and that's what causes this inflammatory response that can result in anxiety and depression, for example. Mm. Uh, 
So and you've yeah. got your serotonin production as well in there. The that's right. Well. Not yeah. only that, yeah, that's right. So we, if we go back to the gut as well and the microbes that are living there, most of your serotonin, which is one of your happy, calm, ordered, needed for rest, for sleep, for digestion, um, neurotransmitter, brain chemical, mm. most of that is produced in the gut by beneficial bacteria. So if you don't have the right kind of bacteria growing in your gut, then you're not going to be able to make those neurotransmitters and therefore you're more likely to be in that fight or flight mode where you're feeling tense and anxious and can't sleep and can't focus, can't concentrate. Mm. Um, yeah, so whenever I'm working with anybody who is coming, you know, specifically for anxiety or depression, yet again, the first place I will look is what's going on in your gut, you mm. know. I've got depression, okay, so how are your poos? <laughs> you know, you got to take it back there to yeah. the basics. Yeah. yeah. So that's actually a nice little segue. So the next <laughs> is um, we will get to the poo very soon, but we're going to talk about if we were to look at, um, you, you know, the majority of your patients, um, you know, whether it's uh, infl- inflammatory related, uh, autoimmune related, which is also inflammatory, I guess, what are the common um, signs and symptoms that you see, observe and maybe test? Yeah, okay. So a lot of the signs and symptoms for these things are um, amongst what we've just spoken about. So commonly things are fatigue, um, tiredness and fatigue. Um, there's depression and anxiety. Brain fog is huge, inability to concentrate, um, poor clarity of mind. Um, and then depending on what the condition is will depend on, you know, where the symptoms yeah. are found. So with thyroid issues, for example, hair loss, um, feeling the cold, constipation, if it's low thyroid or diarrhea, if there's hyperthyroid issues mm. going on. Um, weight gain for low thyroid, weight loss for high thyroid function, um, dry skin, uh, what else? You know, the bumpy kind of chicken skin on the upper arms can come up if there's mm. issues with the celiac um, uh, disease or celiac gene or vitamin A or fatty acid absorption. And What's really interesting in terms of just as a little side note or actually not side note, it's related because you asked what would I test for. So mm-hmm. if I'm suspecting thyroid issues, then I will actually test for the gluten gene, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 because really it should probably be termed the thyroid gene because more people who have those gene SNPs will actually get thyroid disorders rather than celiac disease and it is often triggered by the eating of gluten mm-hmm. so um so you know like, that's the epigenetic switch is it just through eating gluten it triggers yeah that gene. that's right yeah. and if you yeah just um not necessarily just eating gluten like you might have that gene and eat gluten and not get those diseases yeah uh, eating gluten, if you have the, those genes, is like playing with petrol next to a fire. You just need the yeah. right conditions and it's going to go up in flames. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my advice is certainly to avoid gluten if you have the, mm. those genes, even if you haven't got the disease yet. You know, why wait until you get it before yeah. you um, protect yourself? So, right. yes. Yeah, so, um 
obviously with arthritis, there's things like joint pains with neurological issues. There can be, um, you know, tremors or ticks and that kind of thing mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the list, list is endless. Is <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's often endless depending on what's going on. Yeah. But um, for testing, I like to test basic nutritional biochemistry, so things like plasma, zinc, serum, copper, vitamin D is so important Mm. because um, in Australia and New Zealand, we tend to be quite low in vitamin D and our lab levels for what's sufficient is really insufficient. So, um, you know, anything over 50 in Australia and New Zealand is considered fine. But really, anything under 100, you can start having issues with immune resilience or regulation, yeah. um, inflammation and those kinds of things. So I'm actually normally aiming from around the 140 nanomole mark. Okay. Um, so, yeah, vitamin D is very important. Yeah. Zinc and copper, selenium, iodine. Iron lipid studies to give us an indication of inflammation as well. Um, C reactive protein, erythrocyte sedimentation mm-hmm. rate, all of these kinds of things in regular yeah. yeah pathology can be quite useful. Mm. Um, obviously, if thyroid is suspected. Just testing thyroid stimulating hormone is not adequate. You need yep. to do T3 and T4 as well, and ideally also thyroid antibodies and thyroid receptor antibodies because often the antibodies go out of whack before the hormones do. So by the time the hormones are out of balance, there's been um, pathological, pathophysiological states going on for quite some time already. Uh, So you want to catch it before it becomes a diagnosable disease rather than, no, we can see the iceberg, but we're just going to wait until we crash into it before we get the lifeboats out, right? So um, we want to change the way that we're looking at healthcare. Mm. Uh, So that's another test. And then my number one favorite functional test that I do the most of would be a bioscreen fecal microbial analysis. Mm -hmm. So A poo test. Yes, a poo test. <laughs> um, so poo gets sent off to uh, Bioscreen in Melbourne, a fantastic lab um, headed by Dr. Henry Butts, believe it or not. And um, yes, destined for the role. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what, a, what this FMA does, it's quite different from other types of poo tests. So just getting a regular poo test from the GP is not the same. Yeah. What this does is it gives you a breakdown of what microbes, what the, what the predominant microbes are that are growing in your gut and which ones aren't, you know, whether they're are undergrowths or overgrowths or uh, rather than infections, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the scheme of things, it's still in the infancy of testing because we know mm. that there are hundreds, at least 500, if not thousands, mm. <laughs> of species of microbes in the guts. And um, testing at the moment is really only looking at the predominant ones that we know of. Yeah. However, so it's not a complete picture. However, it is a very good starting point yeah. and it does give a lot of insights and it's not a cheap test, but it saves so much time, money mm. uh, and energy. Right? Yeah. yeah, because you know exactly what it is that you're dealing with and therefore... Yeah. 
if you've got a practitioner who is good at interpreting those results and then knows what to do to restore that balance, you can see things like autoimmune um, antibodies decreasing. And, uh, you know, especially with thyroiditis, it's one of the easiest ones to reverse, you know. So you mm. can reverse these conditions that people are often told. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about yep. this. You've just got to take thyroxine or, um, you know, whatever the medication is for the condition yeah. for the rest of your life. And usually what happens with autoimmunity, this is what's very important. What happens with autoimmunity is if you get one disease and you just treat it in a management kind of way, like taking a thyroid hormone yep. instead of, yeah, then what happens is you will normally get between three and five other autoimmune diseases as time goes on. So you just end up being on this cocktail of drugs mm. to try and manage these conditions. Yeah, it must be tough on every level for the you know, for the individual. Yeah, and it just causes more side effects and quality of life is mm. not great. People do feel terrible and they're fatigued and usually depressed. Um, it's a common um, concomitant um, issue with chronic illness is depression, which doesn't make life any fun. So one thing mm. to remember with autoimmune diseases is regardless of what the disease is called, it is not a disease of that tissue or organ. So yeah. thyroid, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is not a thyroid disease. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is not a joint disease. It is an immune disease. It's a disease of immune dysregulation that affects that organ or that yep. tissue. Okay. And that's a very important differentiation. Great point. To make. Great yeah. Point. So, um, because you need to regulate that immune system rather than just treat the symptom. Otherwise, as I said before, you treat the symptom, but then you'll just start getting symptoms you in other areas. Elsewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So obviously with some of these um, special uh, conditions, there'll be a, an isolated, what a, a protocol designed for that individual. But mm. if we were to look at some big hitters, so, um, you know, maybe for prevention of any um, gut issues and also um, some people that may have some some inflammatory issues or some some issues, what are some big hitting sort of practical solutions for those people that you'd recommend? Well, I think starting off with basics, right, and remembering that mm. food is medicine or food-like substances are, are poison, right? <laughs> so um, eating well is so important because regardless of, you know, you could have the best protocol under the sun, but if you're still eating junk, then it's going to be an uphill battle. Yeah. So, um, yeah, diet is so important. And if we look at again, the westernized countries or the industrialized world, the biggest um, deficit in the diet, regardless of what your eating philosophy is, is a lack of vegetable intake. Yeah. And this is one reason why I developed 9V9 to really encourage people and find, you know, fun and interesting and delicious ways to make vegetables mm. a feature of your plate rather than a soggy, overcooked size yeah. dish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. everyone most knows the still view as overcooked, <laughs> soggy, yeah, Brussels sprouts or whatever. No one likes that. Yeah. So let's, um, yeah, revive veggies and make them delicious and easy. Yeah, and 
<laughs> and fun, that's right. And then you feel really good as well. So veggies it would be number one. And then the other problem that we see which goes hand in hand and stats for Australia and New Zealand are similar. Um, I haven't seen the ones for UK and the States, but, I'm, but I imagine they're quite similar. Yep. That usually at least 55% of dietary intake in Australia and New Zealand is processed grains. So basically that means a lot of carbohydrate, a lot of starch, which gets churned into or um, changed into sugar, which uh, feeds opportunistic microbes. So microbes in our guts are actually there to help us and if we eat too much of something that is going to cause us damage they try and do us a favor favor by gobbling it all up mm. but in doing so they proliferate themselves and then just like us they eat and poop and the stuff that they poop their byproducts are no good for us so they're trying to do us a favor but they cause problems yeah. as well so then we end up with these bacterial overgrowth so we might end up with SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth or mm. dysbiosis in the large bowel. We get bloating and changeable bowel habits. Um, people will get thrush or candidiasis, whether it's oral or vaginal um, or th- uh, candida overgrowths in the guts, yeah. um, which can make people feel depressed and brain fog and all the things that alcohol does because that's what yeast produce, right, alcohol. Yeah, so you've got these yeah. little alcohol factories in your body yeah exactly you actually literally do get drunk off your microbes um so well almost literally and i don't know if it would come up in a breath test i think i did (laughs) do a breath test and they um were told that they had been drinking they hadn't been drinking and it turned out that it was from um yeah this really big yeast overgrowth that they had so um yeah where were we? So basically limiting your starches so that you're not um, giving an abundance of these um, macronutrients for bugs to have to mop up for us and mm. um, then cause problems as a result. Yeah. It's not to say that you want to be on a no-carb or no-starch diet and depending on your individual state of health, different amounts of and different types of carbohydrates and starches are going to be appropriate for you. So that's something more to go into detail with with the um, appropriate health practitioner. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yes, generally speaking, the majority of the population are eating too much of those foods and not enough veggies. Mm. So that would be the number one place to start. Great. And yeah. Um, in terms of uh, obviously, if nutrition is really big. Um, and, and the mm. gut obviously affects the brain and everything else. But what about mm. um, the environment we provide for the gut in terms of um, our stress levels and maybe exercise mm. and sleep patterns and things like that? Do you pl- place uh, sort of equal weighting on them or uh, yeah, how, does that, how does that fit for you? I mean, all of those things are part of the picture. I think one thing, you know, humans are really weird in that we, for, for many ways, but <laughs> One of them is that we forget that we are animals and that we are part of nature. We often tend to remove ourselves from nature and we look at nature as though it's something separate from us. And then, you know, we see 
kookaburras and kangaroos and kiwis do what they do and then we think, oh, we can eat whatever and it shouldn't affect us and we should be able to get away with it and then wonder why things go wrong yeah. uh, when we haven't been living or eating in a biologically appropriate way. So um, we need to keep in mind that we, being part of nature, have rhythms that we need to abide to. Um, so one very easy one is the circadian rhythm, right? We have this 24-hour body clock and throughout the 24 hours, different organs and systems and functions kick into gear. And some of those things require darkness and some of those things require us to be asleep for, for those functions to happen, yeah. like um, the production of human growth hormone for example, happens while we're asleep. Um, so, and that's very important for maintaining lean body mass and for tissue repair, yeah. um, amongst many other things. So, if we're not getting sleep, we're not able to repair tissue. Now, our gut gets our gut lining gets shedded at such a rate that it's needing to be repaired on a daily basis, right? Wow. So, if we're not getting if we're not getting sleep, we're not getting that time to repair and then we're mm. going to be more prone to things like leaky gut. Mm. We're also going to be more in that stress state where we're in sympathetic autonomic nervous system yep. mode where um, we're more in fight or flight. And when we're in fight or flight, we're not producing digestive enzymes and digestive acids to a degree that we would when we're in rest and digest or parasympathetic mm. mode. And so then we're not breaking down our foods properly and unable to absorb our nutrients very well. And so then that becomes a vicious cycle too because yeah. then we don't have the nutrients we need to make the enzymes and the acids and, you know, it keeps going. Um, so exercise is important. It has been shown to have beneficial impacts on gut flora. Um, but too much exercise, again, can actually be detrimental because it is another form of stress. Yeah. So we don't want to go and overtrain, but we do want to make sure we're moving and we're playing, you know. Just the right dose, yeah. Exactly, and you and I are both big fans of play-based movement and being yep. in nature, and these things right. are incredibly important for mm. our gut. Mm. And when we're in nature, we're exposed to a whole lot more microbes as well. We're touching trees or getting our hands dirty or yeah. whatever it is, and that transfers microbes from the soil and the environment into us. And microbial diversity, one thing that is very clear is that microbial diversity, the more diverse our microbial inhabitants are, yeah. the better our ha health outcomes. So Great. we want exposure to a lot of different types mm. of um, symbiotic bacteria. That's perfect. You can find Helen over at helenpetterin.com and keep an eye out for a 9v9 challenge which seems to be getting some really good results. Now our next guest seems to be equally as obsessed with gut health and is attempting to answer the million dollar question and that is what is the healthiest microbiome on the planet and then how do we get to that microbiome? Please enjoy. Howdy guys, my name is Kale Brock. I'm a filmmaker, journalist, writer and speaker and today I am here on the Best Me podcast. <laughs> Thanks for coming on Kale. Looking forward to diving into it. Just like Thanks you on, did Kyle. earlier on in the ocean. <laughs> so yeah. I hear. <laughs> yeah, every day I try and uh, at least get in the ocean for mostly for a surf 
But um, if the waves aren't really doing it for me, I'll just go for a swim and spend some time down the beach getting some sunshine and, yeah, just I think it, I try and integrate the ocean into my lifestyle in a big way. Beautiful. Um, I look forward to diving into this a bit more soon. So we're here to talk about gut health today. Um, first of all, I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey um, and what led you to be so interested in gut health. Yeah, I mean, I started off my own health journey quite early when I was diagnosed with a heart condition at the age of 16. The condition was um, supraventricular tachycardia. This is a condition where you, where I would experience arrhythmias to the point of almost fainting. And as an avid surfer, it's not a great situation to be in, out in the ocean almost fainting. So I went to the cardiologist, got hooked up to all the batteries and the ECG monitors and got diagnosed with this condition. And at that time, the only option that I was given was to undergo an ablation. And for those of you who don't know, an ablation is where the doctors wanted to sort of enter my system, go into my heart and burn away a piece of the heart. They wanted to burn away the sinoatrial node because it wasn't working properly. And I thought, you know, this is a little bit silly because it's not working. Why can't we fix it? Why do we have to destroy it? So I asked that question and was sort of met with a pretty blank um grim response from from the cardiologist and i said does nutrition have anything to do with it can i sort of manage this nutritionally and he said no it's got nothing to do with it so i had sort of alternative ideas at that point and was introduced to a naturopath who i started working with and worked with her for about eight or nine years and was able to learn from her uh, very quickly actually within a couple of hours uh, so very basic health principles which really turned things around for me and I was able to manage and turn around that condition within about six months. So I sort of went from going, having this frequency of um, arrhythmic, I don't know, arrhythmic attacks uh, once, once or twice a week to once or twice a month and then, you know, once or twice a year and then even less frequently. So it was a pretty cool experience being able to manage myself without using drugs or wow. surgery, just using basic lifestyle tips and, and um or basic lifestyle changes and dietary mm. changes and some supplement changes as well. And so it was, it was quite good to, to see that. And early on, I don't really know still what I did exactly that <laughs> helped me fix my heart. You know, besides a f couple of different things, I still don't know what it is exactly. But I think as a journalist, I had a lot of questions to ask and was able to do a lot more digging than the average person, I guess, because it became my job. And naturally, when you start looking into health now and holistic um, or just well-being in general, even science mm -hmm. now, you we're seeing that a lot of attention is being given to the gut and the, the gut microbiota and their impact on our health and well-being. And mm -hmm. I found that there was sort of a, a bit of a, a gap in that whole equation where there was a lot of this technical science coming out and technical writings on gut bacteria, but yeah. no one was putting it in a way that the average person could understand and act on because exactly. I thought that was really important for people to actually act on this information. So I sort of landed in a place where I got to tell the story in a more fun and comprehensive and enjoyable way, and that's sort of become my vocation now. Now, very interesting. I could imagine just that experience alone um, would just lead you to, you know, question everything, you know, mm. health-wise, and not accept anything as, you know, a, you know, a fact. 
and I still don't. I still don't. This is a thing we're learning so much so quickly now. And I was speaking with John Elliman the other day, who's a microbiologist, who's in my film, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, the best scientists can do is to actually um, sort of speak on what they know or what they currently know and then yeah. expect to be proven wrong or expect yeah. to change their tune down the line. That's just the way science works. So it's really important to keep an open mind. You know, it's yeah. the mind's like a book. It, work, it works best <laughs> when it's open. You know, yeah. it's 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 so important for, for us to do that, not just with health. I think with everything, um, life is so much easier uh, with an open mind you, when you take that pressure off and just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean you have to actually take that on and be offended by that. You can yeah. actually move on with your life. How's that for a notion that we don't have to, <laughs> you know, get angry and stress when we disagree with someone's mm -hmm. moral standpoint or something? I still get it today when I wrote an article the other day on uh, vegan gut health and because I always get this question, is it possible to be, have good gut health if you're a vegan? I said, look, in this article basically – I said, I know a lot of vegans with gut issues. I know a lot of meat eaters with gut issues mm. too. Here's the rub. So we sort of gave the thing and it was like the, the crux of the story was it's possible, but you need to be a little bit more um, diligent with how you do it. Yep. And even still, we had people who clearly didn't read the article properly who look at the title yep. and then write a response like, there is no science in this article. Have you not read how not to die by XX doctor? Have you not seen what the health XXX? It's just a joke, you know, yeah. how yeah. it's how these people sort of emotionally react mm. to ideas that are so far from yeah. their own in a way that um, it's really – yeah. yeah, it's just emotionally immature yep. and, you you know, you have to let those things go and now I guess I'm getting it more than ever that my stuff yeah. is really getting out there. So you kind of just <laughs> have to accept that that's part of the job and, yeah. and try and inspire people by having an open mind yourself. <laughs> that's great, man. What an awesome approach, I think. Yeah, to life in general. In my opinion, that's, that's the definition of wisdom, you know, versus uh, becoming stubborn. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Wise before your time. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I'd like you to define what, you know, gut health means to you. I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I mean, gut health, without sounding cliche, is individual to every single person. Mm -hmm. And my job over the past year has been looking at the optimal microbiome and whether it does even exist or not. And I guess what I found is that there are – there, there is an optimal microbiome, but it's not one. It's many, and it's unique to everyone's situation and what they eat and how, they, how much they exercise and their stress levels and where they live is also an incredibly important factor mm. in this whole equation. So I think good gut health is having a microbiome that is optimal for your current situation and your current circumstances and yeah. one that helps you thrive in your given environment, be it where you live, your stress, your yeah. exercise levels and what you eat. Yeah. Um, so really having good gut health on your side to enable you to actually do what you want to do with your life. I think that for me defines good gut health. That's brilliant. Um, now we're going to get into this in a little bit more depth because uh, your documentary or your movie is out, um, which is pretty yes. exciting. And I really hope that we can get it uh, over to Wellington soon. Um, but first of all, um, tell us about your, your trip to Namibia and 
you know, why you decided to, to do it as well? Yeah, I had, I had been doing a lot of research at this point. I had uh, just finished my gut healing summit. I did an online gut healing summit where I interviewed a, a bunch of different experts on the gut and the microbiome, again, trying to ask that question, is there an optimal microbiome we can all be striving for? And out of that, I realized the, the more I learned from this experience, the more I realized how little I knew and how much there was to know about the gut. And I thought there's got to be a movie in this and there's got to be a way that we can do this without creating this information overwhelm, without creating this idea that there's this perfect microbiome we all need to be striving for. Yeah. And I had been aware of Jeff Leach, Dr. Jeff Leach, or uh, who's been doing research in Tanzania with the Hadza. Yeah. And uh, they're a, they're a Bushman tribe. And yeah, that he's been looking at what their diet looks like, an incredibly high-fiber diet, and they have incredibly diverse microbiomes. Yeah. So I initially actually got in touch with Jeff and said, look, can we come and film with you? And But it just wasn't going to be possible with Jeff. So yeah. what I did is reached out to a friend of mine who's an Africa tour guide, and I said, look, are there any traditional hunter-gatherer tribes that we could go and see and see what their microbiomes are doing? And he, we actually found another Bushman tribe called the San people mm. who are native to southern Africa. And they had been sort of pushed to very, uh, very rural locations due to various reasons. And they were living in very harsh conditions and lo and behold, they had very little access to Western medicine, very little access to Westerners in general. Definitely. And we were able to go and stay with them and we were able to go and live with them for a week. And I guess with that, using that trip and that experience as a medium upon which to explore this whole equation called gut health, yeah. uh, we were able to document i guess a, a journey of my own gut health over a short amount of time so looking at how originally in the film i started with quite a low low bacterial low microbial diversity yep. and again this could have been from various things like uh, antibiotic use throughout my teenage yeah. years or being exposed to whatever um or it could have just been taking a particular sample of my microbiome at a time where I had just been flying, for instance, or I had just yeah. been doing X or X, you know, the myriad that of things. That be quite impactful on your microbiome, yeah. Yeah, mm. there's a lot of things which can impact it. Mm. So anyway, the, the story was I had quite a low microbial diversity and I went to go and live with this tribe to see how my microbiome was impacted during that time and also to test some of their microbiomes as well. And we found that I had quite a significant change in my gut bacteria whilst living with the sun. Only for one week, I had a wow. massive change. So it was very, very quick to change. And that's probably one of the biggest things that's come out of the film from a practitioner point of view is how quickly the microbiome can adapt and shift. And for me, one of the most exciting things we talked about in the film, we talk about allergies uh, and, you know, we met up with an incredible researcher who's been reversing peanut allergies with probiotics in clinical trials. And we met up with Professor Thomas Barodi, who is the, the poo transplant guy. He's, yep. he's pioneered FMT throughout, throughout the world. Uh, he's been incredibly amazing in the film and uh, we worked with a molecular geneticist to study my microbiome and it was a pretty cool experience just to bounce back and forth between yeah. that and we really discussed that whole 
er, the whole idea of gut health in the film. And, you know, the goal was just to get people talking about gut health and really reduce the stigma. If And this has been funny. Get people talking about poo. <laughs> Yeah, essentially removing the stigma associated with it, you know, and I think coming out of the film, it's been interesting to see those people who are still uh, little children and they want to um, be told exactly what to eat and they they come away from the film and they say, "I, I don't really know what to eat and it's like well you know we can't tell you exactly what to eat because that would be irresponsible because we all need different food so obviously we need to generalize and say yeah everybody needs to focus on a whole foods diet but within that there's a specific approach that's appropriate for everyone at different stages in their life for instance if they're gut healing then doing a large amount of starchy carbohydrates might not work whereas if someone who's got a really diverse and healthy microbiome and does a lot of exercise, a large amount of starchy carbohydrates may work. So, mm. you know, we didn't want to um, pigeonhole in the in the movie yeah. and that yeah. sort of – I think that's one of the movie's greatest strengths is that it doesn't give a black and white – doesn't give black and white statements on what you should be eating and how you should yep. be living. It just yep. gives ideas and inspiration on um, ways you can actually start talking about it and thinking about it and making an informed decision on, on what you end up doing. Great. So just to clarify uh, for the listeners as well, um, how was a microbiome tested? Simply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you haven't, if you don't know, it can be quite an awkward situation because essentially you have to poo into some sort of container or the ground if you're out in the bush like I was with in Namibia yeah. and you have to collect a, sam- uh, collect a small sample of your poo and put it into a little uh, testing kit, testing container, mm-hmm. and then send it back to the lab, <laughs> yeah. which almost sounds like a prank. <laughs> Did you it? get a few sideways looks? Uh, well, this is probably one of the funniest and most awkward moments in the film is my requesting poo from these bushmen. <laughs> and uh, there was a stage where I was sitting around the – we come back to village one day. We'd been out hunting and foraging all day. And we'd come out, we got all these bush potatoes, and we're trying these wonderful bush potatoes. And everyone's really happy and excited. You know, it's like we've got the token Westerners in the, in the village. It's a little bit exciting. It's new. It's different. So I'm sitting by the females, and the, the females have this sort of um, – the women have this fire of their own, and the men have another fire, and then they come together eventually in, in the evening. So I was sitting yeah. with the women at this point. And they're all chattering and I'm not really understanding. They're just sort of laughing and I'm sort of laughing a little bit as well. And I sent, I speak to Dennis, our Africa tour guide, and he, and he sort of goes, look, we've got to get this poo stuff sorted because, you know, we're coming to the end of the trip. We've got to organize <laughs> this. So we, <laughs> so I said, okay, look, you're going to go and ask the old man. And I don't mean the old man as in he's an old man. They just call him the old man because he's sort of one of the teachers in the group yeah, and he's yeah. an elder. Yeah. And so it, well, they went and talked to him, and he was like, "Oh, this is a this is a weird request. We'll see how we go." So he approached the males, the male group, um, and then he was sort of in the middle and and spoke out. And you could see the moment I was sitting there and I was looking at the females, <laughs> and you could see the moment when they realized what we had requested because they were laughing that in mid laugh their faces just dropped into this shock <laughs> of realization that oh my gosh these crazy westerners are, are coming here and asking for our poo so 
it sort of reached a point where the the ladies were not that interested in um, participating in this study, which was completely fine by us. And yeah. then we managed to convince three of the males <laughs> of the men to uh, participate. And the next morning, they had you know saved up their poo for us, their morning poo, and what came over and <laughs> gentlemen and collected me from the village and went out. And I actually you know took a little bit of their poop with a little earbud stick thing and put it in our microbiome kit and took it back Beautiful. to Australia. What an experience. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that question has been uh, burning in the back of my mind there. Like, how did you find that social connection after that? Yeah. It was very, we were very tight after that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So, um, so the way you tested yourself as well, didn't you? You did before, during and after, is that right? Uh, before and after. Before and after. Oh, sorry, sorry. Before and at the end of the trip whilst in Namibia because like we said before, when you fly, when you oh, participate course, yeah. in big um, big trips of whatever, especially overseas crossing time zones, getting on a plane and all that sort of stuff, you shift your microbiome very rapidly and significantly. Yeah, yeah. So we wanted to really test my poo whilst I was there to see how much the microbiome had changed because presumably I would um, – lost quite a lot of those new gut bugs that are specific to Namibia. I would have yeah. lost a lot of those after coming back to Australia. Course, and the idea is yeah. to, yeah, the idea is to, after one year, actually retest my microbiome again and that's going to be the um, be topic of a, of a new book. Yeah, mm. be interesting to see if any of the, uh, you know, the Namibian microbes mm. are still present. Yeah, I mean, that would be fascinating mm. that would be huge if they're still there that yeah. would have some massive implications so just um just quickly what sort of percentage change did you experience in only one week i don't want to say because that's the biggest part of the film <laughs> <laughs> but it was i'll it. just say yeah i'll just say it was quite a significant change in my microbial diversity after only a week living with them wow so i've seen some of the studies in tanzania and you know um Three days, you know, significant changes. I think twenty percent. So it's yeah, it's huge, fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So could you explain as well, you know, what your day looked like, and you know, what you were eating while you're in uh, Namibia? Yeah. So we mainly foraged, and we did do some hunting, but we weren't able to actually catch anything. Mm. And this was something interesting to come out of the experience was that these Bushmen, the Sun Tribe, uh, are hunter-gatherers, but they're mainly vegetarian because they just simply can't have a successful hunt all the time, Yeah, which is really interesting. So they have a very high degree of plant fiber yeah. coming into their bodies, and that's reflected in their microbiomes, a very significant amount of bacteroidetes. Mm -hmm. um, fiber fermenting bacteria in their guts and presumably you would have a very large amount of um, short-chain fatty acids, anti-inflammatory molecules in the digestive tract as a result of that. So it's incredibly cool to see that and we also experienced that. It was a large amount of plants, so a lot of bush mm -hmm. potatoes, uh, little bush truffle things that were so delicious. We had some mm -hmm. little berries that we had as well. We had bush onions and then we did have to also my – because I had the crew with me, we had to supplement their diet. So we had to have some uh, more conventional food like apples and, yep. and stuff yep. like that for, for the crew. So I did end up 
um, supplementing a little bit just with a couple of apples and a few different things yeah. like that. But the majority of the of the diet was was what the bushman were eating. Yeah, yeah, wild food. So it's really cool to to see um, just how in touch they are with their ecology and mm. walking along looking at something seemingly innocuous and realizing that oh beneath that's this massive water route you know mm. these guys are digging up and um you know going a meter underground and digging oh. up this water route based on this tiny little set of leaves on top of the soil oh. and this huge thing that they were all that we all got to drink and mush up and squeeze the water from it was just this incredible it, cool oh. thing to do and you know really inspired me to actually when I got home to actually come back and apply some of the things that I'd learned and in terms of especially the the emphasis that I now want to place on interacting with my local environment and really getting in touch with my food supply and doing my own foraging and and hunting or whatever but you know, at yeah. the moment, my hunting is just an infrequent attempt at fishing, <laughs> often unsuccessful. Yeah, I, I can relate. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I recently got into foraging myself and I found it, yeah, just beneficial on so many different levels. Yeah, yeah not just nutritionally, no. you know, emotionally. No. It's quite a, um, what's the word? It's it's a primal experience. It's, it's very gratifying, yeah. yeah. And I think it really ticks off some deep, primal I agree. things we have inside ourselves yeah for sure so on on uh and other elements of of life while you're there um you know we're interacting physically with the soil often like bare feet in the you know in the dirt or was it too hot for that um, <laughs> yeah when we first got there we were told that um there were lots of scorpions okay. around <laughs> and death and death adders and a few other dangerous and black mambas as well. Oh, yeah. So a few dangerous uh, animals that we actually <laughs> found tracks for when we went out hunting as well. We found tracks for these death adders and stuff. And we were like, oh, gosh. But in the end, we ended up feeling very comfortable within the village and going barefoot. Yeah. So we would walk between uh, our little tourist spot <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> through the trees, we'd walk over to the village. And we were barefoot most of that time. So we didn't shower. And we were eating, you know, bush onions and truffles and stuff straight from the fire, not wrapped in our foil or cooked on the grill or, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And getting the old, uh, when you chew down and you get that gritty sand between your teeth, it's like this grinding teeth. So, you know, it was very much an authentic experience in in that way in that we were living very dirty and and living from the land. So, and, you know, you've got dust under your fingernails and all this sort of stuff all day it's you smothered in new microbes so in a way i wasn't surprised at how quickly my microbiome changed because all that stuff ends up within your digestive system you know so it was yeah it made sense that's great i mean and was there actually was there any like physical interaction did you get involved in any um you know like tribal ceremonies or you know some Mm other forms of movement um, at all while you were we got, there? We got to dance. We got to dance. Cool. That was fun. And the guys had a really cool fire ceremony where they – there was an issue where the Bushmen live, where the sun live. There's this little um, village for this particular village, you know, 30 or 40 sun people or members in this village. And then a little bit further away, they have more of a um, – I guess more of a compromise 
in terms of setup, they have actually mud huts yep. and I guess a few Western-style things like windows and doors and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, very rustic, very, I suppose, um, seemingly dilapidated from, mm. from our point of view. However, they do have that available still. And, you know, cool. uh, over there, yeah, over there they were sort of coming over and um, – they had a hyena. They had a regular hyena visitor to this area, and that's that often kept us up at night. The hyena was prowling around our <laughs> tents and stuff like that. It was like pretty sort of weird. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the most powerful sets of jaws in the whole of yep. Africa. Anyway, we were hearing about this hyena that had come over to the the main village where all the children slept and stuff within these huts, uh, mud huts with doors. And um, the hyena was trying to get the chickens and stuff like that, so they had some they had some chickens there as well. And the the local sort of group of dogs, and no one really owns these dogs; they're just sort of a mix between you know domesticated and wild yeah. dogs. Um, they had been going nuts in these hyenas, so the the tribe got together. And one night had this fire and the medicine man actually ended up going into a trance and falling on the floor while we were watching. And the the the, the members of the tribe said that he was communicating with this hyena to tell it to go away. Mm. And that was pretty cool to see. That was yeah. pretty cool to, to experience. And um, that sort of – we went on to sort of say that that um, – night was was meant to bring good fortune on our on our hunt the next day and all that sort of stuff so that was a pretty cool experience yeah you know you're in amongst these these tribes we we made all these poisons together we got the because the the sun hunt with a poisonous arrow they have this deadly concoction of a mixture of herbs and this uh, deadly poisonous worm that they find in the marula tree and they mix it all together and they adhere it or um apply it to their poisonous arrows and, um, you know, it brings down, it can bring down a giraffe, this tiny arrow. Oh. So we got to do that together and really sit down and uh, they would show me everything. So it was very much a hands-on experience. It wasn't oh, yeah. like I was the the uh, yeah. typical tourist Westerner who so wants to watch. Cool, yeah, so you actually got some <laughs> physical interaction with them. Yeah, it was all it was all happening. Everything was on the table because it's a very non-traditional tourist experience you know it's not something that's westernized at all yeah. it's very rustic and and very basic and rudimentary so yeah it was cool oh that's fantastic and um just out of interest did you sleep well when you were there excellent no no electrics around yeah and just we we i almost wanted to do the the authentic thing with sleeping but once we got told about the scorpions and all these things <laughs> it was just sort of like you know what let's just you know we'll stay in tents yeah. and that'll be the cost first be benefit the <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we did i stayed in tents and just yeah. with a little mattress and again when it's that dark out and Beautiful. there are no lights around and you just feel emotionally part of this community it's just you go to bed very contented and and happy. So it was yeah. kind of cool. And the crew were having a couple of beers, so they were sleeping very well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as far as like you know, social connection is involved. Did you observe, or you know, did you obviously you explained a bit of it then? But was there a strong emphasis on you know everyone getting together frequently and uh, socializing as well? All day. I mean, they're together right. all day, and you don't know you don't know who. You see kids and you don't know which one is their mum. 
you know, oh, because the cool. kids just bounce between all the ladies. Yeah. And you don't know who are couples because they don't sit and cuddle and, and you yeah. know, <laughs> post photos on each other's Instagram. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no. So that was – it was really cool. It's just one big community and they're always sitting around. They're always relaxing together and, and chatting and, yeah, and hanging right. out. And I really loved the idea and the fact that, the elders of the tribe were still such valued members mm. of the whole community. Yeah. And they were – one of the hunters was a good probably 80 years old, I think we, wow. we found out. And he was still doing full squats by the fire and just sitting, <laughs> you know, ass, ass to heels at the fire. Oh, that's so inspiring. For, for hours at a time and, you know, then taking us on a six-hour hunt. You know, it was just wow. crazy. Yeah. So, and the leanness and the muscle. I was going to say, what was physical stature like? Yeah. You know, I think 95% of the sun were in incredibly – good shape there was just a couple of outliers in terms of see some of the ladies were, were quite large i'm not sure if one of them was just previously pregnant we yeah. couldn't really tell but you know and again this is going from australia where we have 55 percent of the population yeah. being overweight yeah. or obese or whatever it is yeah. um even more i don't actually know what it is but and then going there when you've got 95 percent of that small subset of the population experiencing pretty amazing cool. health that's pretty cool yeah. uh to yeah. see so they were in very, very good shape. And like you asked before, the community aspect was, was massive. Yeah. And there's no real leader, you know, there's no real boss or anything. It's very much a community vibe and everyone discusses things. And you can see the the young boys have to go through a sort of rites of passage oh, to become a man. And yeah, it was really, really cool to, to see that and see the benefits of that mm. in a very happy, very contented and very healthy culture. Yeah, there's so much gold there. Like it really makes you, you know, question, um, you know, what we consider normal today. It's almost accepted, you know. For example, as we get older, we're going to physically deteriorate. Mm. I've seen that personally with a couple of my clients, where they've they've really challenged that, and they're more physically robust now than they were, you know, thirty, forty years ago. Um, yeah, and this is the thing about keeping an open mind and keeping. Exactly yourself a blank slate to an extent and being open to challenging your ideas of what is considered to be normal and i think a lot of what we do and how we do things is determined by some weird intangible societal expectation that we get lost in and we all want to be part of this we all want to feel safe and secure and part of the community but there has to be a point in which we feel comfortable stepping out of the comfort zone and stepping out of Agreed. what is considered to be normal and, you know, I think that's how we will progress as a culture. I don't think we're going to go back to um, living by the fires and, and doing all that sort of stuff. And I don't think we have to, but how can we reapproximate that yeah. sort of experience or the benefits or positive aspects of that yeah. experience here in the West? That's the biggest question. And that's, that's my next question for you. <laughs> um, what, what, first of all, what have you, how has that changed the way you live and what have you pulled out of that experience and brought back to, you know, the Western world? One of the biggest things when I got back was trying to slow down, you know, and it was very, it was sometimes very difficult to do, especially when you're releasing a film <laughs> <laughs> and touring around Australia to yeah. whatever it is now, almost 20 different shows. Um, or 20 different sellout shows is also quite a, yeah, <laughs> a big deal. Well yeah. So, thank you. And um, 
like I said, slowing down was was a massive thing, and really, not slowing down in terms of productivity, but actually slowing down in terms of that mental urgency or that mental pressure of feeling like you always have to do and you always have to be creating or something like that and just taking time and realizing that in order to be effective and create new beautiful things, you actually need time not creating. You actually need time just being and playing. And for me, that was by the trip, it was emphasized um, to to be in nature whilst doing that. And, you know, so it was just going surfing more consciously, for instance, mm-hmm. it, and just being aware of my surroundings and, and being aware of the fact that I'm picking up bacteria everywhere I go. So going in the ocean, <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to pick up microbes. You know, it's like taking a probiotic, you go in the ocean yeah. and um, going foraging, for instance, and, yeah. and coming in after surfing and noticing that the dianella berries are in season and picking a whole couple of handfuls of them and eating them on the beach, you know, and taking time to eat them on the beach or going to the local market and not worrying about the fact that there's dirt on my sweet potato, you know, from the, from the organic farmer and, you know, just being more conscious in that. And then obviously with the community thing, it's been interesting because I just moved to Sydney um, about a year ago from Adelaide and how do you sort of integrate yourself into a, into mm. a community so that you do have that aspect when you move somewhere new? Yeah. You know, it's, it's all that sort of stuff. So going to the gym and, and being conscious again and just listening to people and trying to engage with people and all that sort of stuff and hopefully not being that weirdo who's like trying to trying too desperately to make friends and stuff but just (laughs) being comfortable and chatting with people out in the surf who i see regularly and just trying to feel at home away from home all that sort of stuff is a big part of my life now i think that's probably one of the unexpected things is that i expected to come back with with gut health ideas but most of the things i came back with were lifestyle principles Mm. Well, your gut health will probably change as a side effect, won't it, for the positive? Exactly, and that's what I'm realizing. And when I've got another – I just got the green light three days ago that I'm doing another documentary in the Greek islands this year. And, you know, out of that, yeah, (laughs) out of that, I expect to come away with with even more. You know, we're doing it on – we're going to live with the the Icareans, oh, one of the the blue zones, yeah. Yeah. So, one of the longest lived cultures in the world and see – what are they doing? You know, yeah. because as far as I'm aware, they're not worried about what they eat. No. They have red wine at every meal. They have Very coffee. Yeah. <laughs> they're not stressed, but hey, yep. they're socializing. They're farming. They're working every day. Like, you know, mm. what's going on there? How come they're living so much longer than yeah. us? I was about um, to say that. I can yeah. see. Sorry, carry on. No, no, that was it. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. So I can see a lot of correlations between, you know, what you've been describing and the blue zones. It just seems like a. You know, it's not coincidence that these people are living long and well, you know. The- no, no. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we here in the West don't live long and well. Yeah. Yep. That we've set up a system yeah. that is not conducive to healthy, happy people. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> without being too esoteric about it, there's mm. this culture of constant unsustainable growth and constant consumption, whether of information or of food. And I think that in no way, in no examples in nature or life, is that a sustainable, healthy thing, you know. So, it really, it, again, and it comes back to that 
open mind thing, we have to take a stand. We have to eventually reach a point where we go enough is enough. I'm going to live my life based on my internal principles as opposed to these principles which I'm told I should follow um, and really step up and take back uh, a lifestyle that is going to be sustainable and conducive to living a long, healthy, happy life. That's brilliant. So I was going to ask you, I feel like you might have already answered this, but what one to two things um, would you recommend everyone considers or uh, takes home to actually focus on nourishing themselves and their gut health? I think the first thing for me at the moment, there are two major things, I guess. The, The first thing is just to eat a whole foods diet. That's number one. Um, if you're eating whole foods, you're going to be doing, you're going to be putting yourself in a situation that's a lot better than the average person. So focusing on a whole foods, fresh, try and go organic diet, um, you're you're going to be in a great situation, really. And if you've still got pathology, which a lot of people do, because the reality is we've done a lot of damage to our to our guts and stuff, and that's that's the way things things are. You will have to tinker with the diet, even if you are eating a whole foods diet, even if you've been eating paleo for five years, there are still a lot of people with gut health issues, you know. Yeah. So you do have to get specific about it at times and you may need to do some testing and you may need to work with a good practitioner to to get on top of your gut health. But number one is focus on a whole foods diet. Um, And number two, of course, I think the biggest one is is interact with your local environment. That's a massive one. I think really getting out there in nature and getting dirty. I think in order to live clean now, we've got to live a little bit dirty. We've really got to get in contact with the soil and the plants and the ocean and um, help our microbiome become a reflection of the environment in which it'll help us thrive. You know, it's a it's a really important aspect to this whole thing. And of course, besides just the microbial benefits of getting out in nature, there are also loads of those more intangible benefits that, you know, I suppose is a whole nother podcast in, in general. Yeah. yeah. Now that's that's great. That's there's so much wisdom in that. And um as I said, I've been into foraging recently and I feel like, you know, I'm definitely often that weirdo, you know, that's rummaging around <laughs> in the bushes and bare feet or by yeah. the ocean and picking my seaweed and whatnot. Um, yeah, that's but, funny. I'm eating seaweed at the moment too and I just try and do it subtly so no yeah. one no one sees. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, let us know when you're in Wellington and I'll take you out to some uh, spots where not too many people can uh, can judge you. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Well, hopefully we can bring the film there. You can find out more about Kale at kalebrock.com or go and check out The Gut Movie, a story about poo and the future of medicine. Um, and you'll find out some more detailed answers to the questions we asked before. Now, our next guest is, again, equally as passionate, almost in a poetic way, about the gut. And he comes at it from a completely different perspective, and that's a neuroscience perspective. So he investigates the intelligence of the gut and the gut brain. Please enjoy this unique perspective. I'm Diego, Diego Borges. Um, I am a neuroscientist. I usually describe myself as a gut-brain neuroscientist, Uh, so... I study uh, with my team in the laboratory how it is that the the gut and the brain communicate through uh, neuronal mechanisms. Um, I'm originally from Ecuador. I grew up in the Amazon region of uh, Ecuador. 
And I came to the United States in 2005 with an ambition to get a, to study nutrition, to study a graduate, um, in a graduate program of nutrition. Yeah. Brilliant. And um, Diego, may I ask you what sort of guided uh, your interest towards uh, gut neuroscience, you know, versus other elements of biology? What was it pushed you in that direction? Yeah, there were several different uh, experiences. One that you already mentioned in a, in a TED talk that I uh, gave uh, recently. Uh, it was a conversation with a friend that uh, she mentioned how after gastric bypass surgery, after rewiring of the intestine to treat obesity, she actually had profound alterations of uh, her perception of food. So that was one. Another one was um, in my experiments uh, as a, a graduate student, I was trying to understand how it is that the first meal that we all have uh, affects the development of the intestine. And the first meal that we all have is amniotic fluid. Mm. Fetuses around uh, week 20 in, uh, of gestation in humans, uh, they swallow the amniotic fluid. And that is a, it is a very rich compound um, uh, juice of uh, nutrients. Wow. It has very profound effects on not only on the morphology of our intestine, but also in our whole behavior and how we come to be, you know. In fact, there are some scientists that think that that is the first meal that sets the threshold of, like, um, when do we feel hungry and how much do we need to feel hungry or not. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that was that was another experience that really got me intri- interested in how it is that eating will affect uh, our brain and who we are. Mm. So um, since then, um, you've obviously done a fair bit of research. Uh, I've had a look through uh, a lot of your work. It's very fascinating, right down to the um, you know the cellular level. Um, so what what have been your sort of major insights? Um, in relation to what you've come across personally uh, in your own research to date? Um, in, in what sense, if you, if you may explain a little bit more. Yeah, so um, let's flesh that out a little bit. So what, ha- what has your research um, concluded so far? Um, and then where is the future um, for what you'd like to um, dive into a little bit more? Yeah, uh, basically, so... Um, when here in the United States uh, to become a uh, full-time scientist uh, that directs a laboratory, the path is that you get a graduate degree and normally you get a postgraduate uh, training that is called a postdoctoral fellowship. So when I went to do that, uh, I was in the laboratory of a mentor at uh, Duke University. Uh, his name is uh, Roger Little, and I started to work in this um uh, and this was a special type of mice that for the first time, these mice allowed us to see the cells that sense food in the intestine <laughs> by fluorescence. So when I started looking at them, I, I, I just really didn't go preconceived idea of how they will function. I just went to look for them. And one of the things that I saw is that they look very different than what everybody else had described them through the years. 
in graphical things. Uh, and it was because, partly was because it was the first time that we could see the whole cell in the animal. Um, so that made me wonder, one of the things that they, they had is they had this very long arm in their base that eventually I call it a neuropod. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that made me uh, wonder whether or not those cells would be connected to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the main through that in that period that was one of the main discoveries that came out of the work and the reason that it has been important important is because it, it provides two things one it, it provides let's say the the foundations for the gut to feel to sense um for the brain to feel what the gut is sensing mm-hmm. because it's a physical connection uh, and two it actually also provides a portal for pathogens so there are a lot of brain diseases that uh, uh, some physicians and some scientists have suggested that they may start in the gastrointestinal tract. Wow. But it's really unknown how they do. Like, for instance, uh, the most popular these days is Parkinson's. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there are some studies in which patients that have had their vagus nerve uh, removed or clipped in this case, uh, the incidence of Parkinson's is much lower. Yeah. So as a consequence, people have started to wonder, you know, is there a gut connection in there? And then it appears that, you know, in, in these cells that I studied that sense nutrients, if they are connected to the nervous system and they could be hijacked by pathogens, well, they constitute for pathogens. Oh, that's fascinating. So, um, yeah, the vagus nerve is fascinating. I guess that, is the vagus nerve, do you call that the, you know, the transportation (laughs) or the highway between the the brain and the gut? Yes. In fact, uh, Carl, I uh, highly recommend you to take a look at, since you love the subject, uh, take a look at this book from, it's called Memoirs of a Stomach. Ooh. You can find it on, online, the full uh, uh, book. It has been digitalized. Okay. Uh, I will share the, uh, I'll share the, the link with you. Fantastic. Uh, it's from 1879, 75, <laughs> and from within Sydney. And if, if I may, I could actually read up my favorite passage. Uh, please, to you. please. Because I think that it beautifully encapsulates what is the vagus nerve and what is in in respect to the gut. Fantastic. So, uh, Sidney Whitney was a very interesting fellow in which uh, he had so much imagination that he wrote this book Mm -hmm. from the perspective of a stomach. So (laughs) the author will be the stomach, right? (laughs) Brilliant. So he said, so he starts on page 21, he says, um, eh, uh, something along the lines, but chiefly by my gastric juice acting as a mainstream, I accomplished the difficult task of supporting the entire body and giving it all its energy and vigor. Added to these means, I had trusty messengers in every direction. And between myself and that individual, Mr. Brain, 
there was established a double set of electrical wires, by which means I could, with the greatest ease and rapidity, tell him, tell the brain, all the occurrences of the day as they arrived. And he also could impart to me his own, to me, the stomach, his own feelings and impressions. Often, when he has received unwelcome intelligence, I have refused to digest out of pure sympathy. <laughs> and when occasionally I grew morose and refused to work, he too grew irritable and petulant. <laughs> hmm. that, that's how the cat describes the uh, relationship that has the, wow. with the brain through the vagus. It is just beautiful. <laughs> it is poetic. <laughs> and that was uh, in 1875 by what was uh, Sidney Whiting, and he calls himself the Minister of the Interior. <laughs> wow, how much wisdom is in that? Excuse me? How much wisdom is in within that? Uh, that yeah, he, he got it precisely because uh, recently at a conference, that, uh, and so I, I was uh, organizing this conference in Singapore with some other colleagues on gut-brain biology. And I had, uh, when it was my time to uh, give a talk, I had started with this, and all I said is like, <laughs> you know, uh, and what is it, 140 years since, uh, all we're doing is just filling in the blanks on like the small details. You know, yeah, it just feels like now you're just putting the neuroscience behind it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, that brings a whole new um, meaning to gut feelings, doesn't it? It does. And like everybody has talked about gut feelings as yeah. an esoteric uh, thing, but in, uh, in reality, um, there is a, a neurobiology aspect to it. And it's not surprise. It's like uh, 40 years ago, memory was something so esoteric, right? Yep. Now there are, you know, some validation and some theories that like memory could be holding like certain synapses in certain areas of the brain. So, you know. I mean, yeah, on, on that brain uh, topic, you know, the, uh, the gut is now referred to by a lot of people as the, you know, the second brain. And, you know, as you just said there, it, it holds a lot of intelligence and, I think last time I read there was was it 100 million neurons in the in the gut something ridiculous like that. So it's obviously a center of intelligence and it's obviously designed to to communicate and it sounds like yeah, the vagus nerve is the is the highway. <laughs> in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, am I right in uh, believing that there's more fibers in the vagus nerve de dedicated to going towards the brain than from the brain to the gut? Is that right? Uh, there is quite a bit of, uh, so the vagus nerve has two tracks and then within each track it has like several different fibers that uh, go in both directions as Sydney uh, and Whitney already noted and it goes to several different organs. But on top of that we also have uh, the sympathetic uh, a portion of the nervous system, of the peripheral nervous system which is um, it goes to the spinal cord, and then from the spinal cord goes up into the brain. So wow. it, the brain is very well connected with uh, the viscera, as it should be, right? Mm. Mm. Otherwise, imagine that we eat something toxic, and then we just had no clue, and a week later, it's like, ooh, you know, it's rotten in there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. I know it's fascinating, but at the same time, it kind of makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Well, it does now that we have the tools to start to tease things apart. You know? Yeah. What role do you think, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the sympathetic nervous system, but the autonomic nervous system, what role do you think that plays uh, in regards to gut and brain health, in your opinion? In gut and brain health? I mean, it does have, yeah, it does have a, a, a big role uh, in the sense that is, I mean, is the interface, right? Mm. It's the interface, and for instance, you know, there is quite a bit of evidence that people that are uh, stressed, uh, the vagus nerve mediates like the signals that go from the brain down into the gut and then may cause like ulceration, hypersensitivity, uh, lack of motility or hypermotility and a lot of these alterations, you know, and we are just starting to understand like how it is that it actually works. You know? Yeah. So this way I can see how, um, you know, your current state or your, you know, your stressed or relaxed state obviously has a direct impact on uh, gut brain health, obviously. Um, but yeah, that's the practical side of it, I guess. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is, that's what keeps us uh, <laughs> motivated, right? Yeah. So, uh, perhaps we can have a major impact here. Mm. So, um, you mentioned before about your friend that had the the gastric bypass and how that influenced her her food cravings. So, um, in the in your TED talk, which I highly recommend all the listeners that are listening today go and check out. I'll put a link to it in the notes. Um, you said that um, she had a real aversion to uh, runny egg yolks. Is that right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then post bypass surgery, um, had strong cravings for runny egg yolks. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was an eye opener. Yeah. So, are we are we getting close to finding out the mechanism as to uh, you know how or why that may have happened? We are, and in fact, uh, that is that can be reproduced in a so you know like one of the main things that we use for our research are uh, animal models, right? Like yeah. from blacks to. Um, mice to monkeys yeah. uh, and people have been able to reproduce the same effects in, in mice so if you do if, if you have there are some mice lines that are like, like obese and if you replicate gastrovapa surgery in those mice then you can replicate some of these behaviors so it, it is really helping us to understand how it is that this rewiring of the intestine uh, it's transforming the perception in the brain fascinating i'd like to tease out a little bit how um you know the gut may actually influence uh, the other senses as well so is there anything you um you know or understand or even have some <laughs> i was going to say gut feelings around um in terms of uh the other senses how the gut might influence uh, you know taste or smell um or feel or anything like that yeah you know i, I would say uh couple of things about that one it is that um you know at some point in my uh, philosophical journey i was reading deep about like hmm. um, in the first organisms how is the food you know and then i came to find out that 
when animals first started to be formed by uh, cells organizing into multicellular organisms, they already had this capability to sense food. Like they had a specialized cell that will be the, that that will be dedicated to sense food. So essentially, this ability of the gut to sense uh, it has been there since the first animals, well before smell, uh, you know, hearing and other and other uh, basic senses, right? which makes sense as the prey became more complex and the animals became more ambitious to be able to take on bigger prey. They not only needed to aggregate into bigger multicellular organisms, but they also need to be aware of other cues, you know, and that's when the other senses started to uh, um, develop. So the gut was there at the very beginning. That's one. And then the other one is that, um, because of that, too, I mean, eating is a very primal uh, <laughs> need of us. And I don't know, like, um, if, if you knew, but uh, some, of the, some of our listeners uh, may be surprised to hear that in the absence of taste, so if you remove taste and you deliver sugars in the intestine directly, then animals still seek uh, to learn to find sugars wow. so are very powerful uh, they and what it seems that the animals are able to recognize the caloric value in the in the mm-hmm. nutrient which makes sense right yeah ultimately uh, taste is what attracts them and then the ones they find them they will eat it but the ones that have the most caloric reward <laughs> will keep the animals coming back for it wow uh, wow that's fascinating <laughs> so are there any um before we move on to sort of you know the practical side of things are there any, any other comments you'd like to or any other um things you'd like to say about uh gut and gut brain neuroscience um before we look at the practical side um i know i think that uh, we covered like some some key points yeah yeah so yeah th- this this the science is fascinating um in terms of practical application, uh, what can people do to to maximize uh, gut brain, uh, nervous system, enteric nervous system function, and overall wellness? In your opinion, what are the big hitting um, practical take home points for you? <laughs> you know that uh, that is the key question that I always get asked. The million dollar um, question. <laughs> Uh, not only in shows, uh, it could be at a plane or wherever I am. <laughs> what could it to be? Right? You know, and it is a, well, it's a tough one for me. I'm, first of all, I'm a scientist and I'm not a physician, so I cannot <laughs> take, recommend anything. Yeah. Um, from my own perspective, I think that uh, living a healthy life, and that healthy life goes beyond, I mean, of course, having exercise and having, um, you know, uh, a... Healthy, yeah. hopefully less processed uh, food, but also like having healthy relationships. I think that really helps when uh, you're in a good environment, uh, not only with people, but uh, with animals and plants. You know, it really helps you to stay calm, so you know you don't have a hyper reactive brain that ultimately give you a hyper reactive gut. Um, I think that that is that is something that I will mm-hmm. that I would say in general terms besides what everybody already knows about what is out there about eating healthy and these things, you know. 
No, that is that's fantastic, and that um that ties it all up really nicely, actually. So, um, yeah. you, you know, people often think of gut health in terms of you know what they're eating, uh, or the effects, as you say, of exercise on 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 gut health, but not often is talked about um so much the mindset or the relationships. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, so that really that adds that extra dimension to what we've already talked about on the show, actually. So thank yeah, you for that. Absolutely, I think about that quite a bit uh, because I do realize, like for instance, I'm, if I'm out of sync, if I'm out of um, a face in the wave, you know, I can feel it, right? Like it, it's mm. so easy, like when you travel uh, through the uh, time zones and if you get out of uh, your time zone, then your body is really hard to cope and you, like, you immediately get a... Uh, your gut gets hyperreactive. Uh, you're going to feel it right away. Mm. Um, and I think that is part of on a, on a daily, daily life, right? Like if you try to be in sync, then your body will be able to cope with, with things. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Diego. Um, that was uh, very interesting. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.